Hi, welcome to my podcast, Roxanne Repeats History. My podcasts are actually excerpts from my historic walking tour in New Brunswick, New Jersey. And funnily enough, the second stop on my tour traditionally was Johnson & Johnson's World Headquarters, which stands on Albany Street in New Brunswick, and you can't miss the building. It's that giant white thing that looks like a stack of gauze, which is pretty ironic considering that's how Johnson & Johnson got their start uh, making money. So I thought I would do something a little different today. Um, I thought I'd kind of do a question and answer with myself, if that makes sense. Um, You know, we read about Johnson & Johnson in the headlines a lot today because of their one-dose vaccine for (laughs) COVID-19. I made a rhyme. Anyway, um, so I thought it would be kind of interesting to kind of go over uh, a little bit of the background of Johnson & Johnson that you may not know. Um, so I'm going to start off by, um, asking if there were three brothers, why isn't it called Johnson, Johnson and Johnson or the Johnson brothers? Well, there's a very interesting reason behind that. Now, Robert Wood Johnson, who happens to probably be be the most famous of the Johnson brothers, went into business with his brother, James Seward and Edward Meade. And when they started the business in 1886, Robert Wood Johnson was actually in a bit of a pickle. He had signed a non-compete clause with uh, his old partner in New York City, a man by the name of George Seabury. And in that, he said, it said that he was not allowed to manufacture medicinal plasters. And so um, when they went into business, it had to be um, James and Edward that were the front men, and Robert Wood Johnson was kind of the silent partner hanging out in the background, giving them all the great ideas. So that's why it's Johnson and Johnson and not Johnson, Johnson and Johnson. Now, why New Brunswick, New Jersey? Well, since 1886, um, we have been the world headquarters for Johnson and Johnson, and it was originally a used uh, factory that they were working out of. And over time, they outgrew that building and they made a new headquarters. And the second headquarters was actually uh, commissioned by Robert Wood Johnson II. His father, Robert Wood Johnson I, had passed away in 1910, and. Interestingly enough, um, the land that they bought to use for the factory was um, adjacent to Rutgers College at the time. And so Robert Wood Johnson II uh, wanted that building to fit in with its surroundings. So he told the architects, I need you to design something that will fit in with this collegiate surrounding. And they fitted the bill perfectly. They came up with a building and even dubbed it Johnson Hall, like a college uh, college building would be. And they designed it to look like it could house students in a dormitory setting or be uh, filled with classrooms. It's a, a large brick Georgian style building and still stands and is still owned by Johnson & Johnson. Their third headquarters, like I said, looks like a stack of gauze and was designed by world-famous architect I.M. Pei. 
And um, I'm not sure <laughs> whether uh, he was given the directive to make it look like a Johnson & Johnson product or if that was just something that was just a big coincidence. But you can't miss the building. But funnily enough, mid-20th century, Johnson & Johnson almost moved out of New Brunswick. The fortunes of New Brunswick had steadily declined since the late 1800s as Johnson & Johnson's fortunes rose. And there came a time around about 1960-something that Johnson & Johnson had really thought about moving out of New Brunswick. Um, The executives there felt like New Brunswick was a rundown, dirty city and not representative of Johnson & Johnson's wholesome um, bandage image. And so it took Robert Wood Johnson II going back to his credo of the company stating that we need to help our neighbor. And in this case, the neighbor was the city of New Brunswick. And so they embarked hand in hand with the city of New Brunswick to start an urban renewal project. Now, I have to tell you, this urban renewal project has always kind of irked me a little bit because one of the first things they did was tear down all of the old waterfront buildings. And in that, there were a lot of historical buildings and historical significance. And unfortunately, those things had to give way in order for a rebirth of New Brunswick to happen. Um, You can see the handprint of Johnson & Johnson and this urban renewal all over the city, even today. So although they did save New Brunswick from rack and ruin, um, they didn't turn out to be another Camden. Um, There is a little part of me that wishes they could have saved some more of the history of New Brunswick. Now, what were they making back in 1886? They were making medicinal plasters. Uh, Medicinal plasters, not ringing any bells for me. Are they ringing any bells for you? Well, medicinal plasters were something that was a kind of a fix-all, medically speaking, back in the late 1800s. Some of them were filled with a mustard paste and other, you know, various ingredients. And the idea was if you had a burn or if you had a cough, these plasters were placed on your body, wherever the ailment may be, to heal you. They were a big money-making thing, and as you remember, I previously told you that so much so that um, Mr. Seabury felt like he needed to put a non-compete clause in so that Robert Wood Johnson wouldn't steal any of his plaster business. Pretty amazing at the time. Now, who was making all of these plasters? Well, I got a hint for you. It's not the Oompa Loompas from Willy Wonka. It was actually Hungarians. Hungarians um, happened to live in New Brunswick, and they signed up for a few jobs at Robert at Johnson and Johnson. And Robert Wood Johnson um, was so enamored with their work ethic and their productivity that he invited them to actually write letters to other Hungarians back in the homeland in Europe and invite them to come to move to New Brunswick and take up employment with Johnson & Johnson. 
It was a very cordial relationship between the Johnsons and the Hungarians. Um, They were thankful for a decent wage, good working hours, and such. And in return, they also were inviting Robert Wood Johnson II um, to weddings and other celebrations. Now, Robert Wood Johnson II especially had a very... uh, tender relationship with these people because he actually worked shoulder to shoulder with them for quite some time. When his dad died in 1910, um, the other brothers felt that Robert Wood Johnson II was too young to take the helm of such a big business. And so they decided that he needed to learn the business from the ground up. And so they put him to work on the factory floor. And so in this, he learned and met these Hungarians and built and forged a bond that was never, ever broken. Um, He always made sure that they were looked after. He understood their plight, having worked from the ground up. So although I'm sure at the time, being a teenager and into his early 20s, he was resentful of the fact that he was made to work on the factory floor, I think he also realized how well it served him later on when he was the head of Johnson & Johnson. Now here's an off-the-wall question. Listerine, ever use it? Well, who is it named for? Well, that would be Joseph Lister. Joseph Lister was a European that had some very, at the time, different ideas on wound healing and antiseptic bandages. And Robert Wood Johnson I was enamored with his views. Um, But there was one problem. You see, Lister, he had discovered that if you soaked bandages in carbolic acid and then sealed them in glass containers, you would have sterile dressings. But in Robert Wood Johnson's mind, he was thinking back to the Civil War. And that's where secondary infection killed more people than mini balls shot at them did. And so Robert Wood Johnson was interested in using sterile bandages in a wartime setting. Now, I don't know if you've ever seen the movie Gone with the Wind, but if you have, there is a scene there where it's after a battle and they're in a makeshift hospital and all of the women are nursing these soldiers who are cut to shreds with bullet wounds and such and you see that they are lacking bandages and at one point you know somebody's like ripping a petticoat or ripping her dress to try to get some more bandages to bandage these wounds and the problem was is they were taking those bandages and as soon as a soldier expired, they were taking those bandages off that soldier and maybe if you were lucky, dunking them in some water to rinse off some of the crud and germs and then putting them back onto another soldier. And this is what was causing this secondary infection. There was no antiseptic. There was no sterilization. 
And so Robert Wood Johnson realized that he liked the ideas of Lister, but he needed to improve upon them. Um, (laughs) All I can think of when I think of Joseph Lister's ideas of these sterile bandages in bottles is... (laughs) Some poor medic running around a battlefield, many medics running around a battlefield with dozens and dozens of jarred bandages and the sound of what sounds like a macabre cocktail party as this tinkling glass and, and breaking glass is is going from patient to patient. And so not, not only are the bandages not sterile now because the glass is broken, but you may even be introducing a foreign object into the wound. So Robert Wood Johnson realized that the way to go was to sterilize the bandages and then put them in sterilized pouches. He used steam to do this and he was the first to do so and it was an innovation such that Johnson and Johnson bandages were the name back in the early 1900s. Now here's an off-the-wall question for you. Hotels in New Brunswick, specifically the Hyatt and the Heldridge. What is their connection with Johnson & Johnson? Well, the former, the Hyatt, has an interesting story. You see, during that renewal for New Brunswick, Johnson & Johnson decided that they needed to not just destroy what was there, but rebuild and make better what was going to be there. And so they invited the Hyatt Hotel Corporation to come to New Brunswick and put a hotel there. I can only imagine the look on those Hyatt executives' face when they came to New Brunswick, um, seeing a dilapidated city with, you know, a traffic circle on Route 18 and, you know, some waterfront property that may have had some promise, but I'm pretty sure they were shaking their heads wondering how this was all going to work. Well, Robert Wood Johnson II was quite a good businessman and he realized that in order to sweeten the deal he was going to have to come up with some something special and rumor has it his special deal for them was should your hotel ever fall below 80 percent capacity i will write a check making the difference now i'm not sure that that deal was still in play in 2020 when we had a Uh, global shutdown because I'm sure that the executives at Johnson & Johnson would have gotten writer's cramp from writing all those checks to the Hyatt Hotel when they had to close down. But it was a good deal in the fact that Johnson & Johnson knew that with their world headquarters there, with Rutgers University there, Bristol-Myers Squibb, the whole lot, that there was never a chance that that hotel was going to go bust. And it still is there today. And the Heldridge Hotel? Well, the Heldridge Hotel is actually named for John Heldridge. He was one of those executives that spearheaded that urban renewal in New Brunswick. And so to tip their hat to him and what he had done for New Brunswick, they named the hotel after him. 
He passed away about five years ago now, but I was lucky enough before I left New Brunswick to talk to his longtime secretary. And she told me how pleased that John Heldridge was with New Brunswick thriving growth and that although he was very weary and was looking forward to being reunited with his deceased wife, that he was going to his resting place happy knowing that New Brunswick was there to stay and there for the ages. Now, here is a fun and silly question that you could entertain people with, well, I would entertain people with at a party because I'm a history buff and people know that and people know I'm a little weird. Um, Here's a fun trivia question. What do Barry Manilow and Michael Douglas have in common with New Brunswick? Well, the answer is, I am stuck on Band-Aids and Band-Aids stuck on me. Do you remember that commercial from the 1970s? Barry Manilow wrote it, and Band-Aid is a Johnson & Johnson product. And the Michael Douglas connection is that Michael Douglas's uncle, James Sword Johnson, his first wife was sisters with Michael Douglas's mother. Michael Douglas was actually born in New Brunswick. Um, Kirk Douglas was away filming something at the time that his wife was pregnant with Michael Douglas. And, you know, as it goes, when you're pregnant, you want to be with family. And so Michael Douglas's mother decided to go stay in New Brunswick with her sister, and she gave birth in New Brunswick. So, Michael Douglas and Barry Manilow, the Johnson & Johnson connection. Now, here's a question. What do railroads have in common with Johnson & Johnson? Well, a lot, as it happens, because James Seward Johnson happened to be sitting on a railway car when it pulled into New Brunswick when he saw the old Janeway wallpaper factory with a for sale sign on it and decided that that would be the perfect place for their new Johnson and Johnson bandage headquarters. And Robert Wood Johnson I happened to be traveling through Colorado and sitting next to a railway magnet and they got chatting as you do when you're sitting on a you know plane, train or automobile. And they started talking about bandages. And the railway magnet explained to Robert Wood Johnson about all the tragedies and dangers in railway life. This is when they were building the Transcontinental Railroad and there were a lot of railway accidents. And he said, it's just a shame because normally these accidents happen and there's no hospitals around. It's out in the middle of nowhere. And that planted a seed with Robert Wood Johnson. And he went back to his research and development guy, Fred Kilmer, and said, what could we do about this? Well, Johnson & Johnson in 1888 came up with the first first aid kit. And the first first aid kit was actually designed to be carried on railroad cars. And these first kits had bandages and plasters and sutures, things that you would need for 
severe trauma injuries. And that's how the first first aid kit was born. And after that, they made the, um, a few minor adjustments in the contents of the first aid kits, and they were sold to people to keep in their homes. You probably had one as a child, those little metal tins with the blue and white. That was a Johnson & Johnson first aid kit. You know, there's an old saying about being lucky in business and unlucky in love and that, you know, if you're doing great at your job, your home life is probably failing. Well, that seemed to be the case with the Johnson brothers. Although from the mid-1880s through to the 1940s, the Johnson & Johnson label was just gaining in leaps and bounds. But it's funny that Robert Wood Johnson II had married three times, and his cousin, James Seward Johnson, also married three times. Now, James Seward Johnson is actually quite interesting. He had a second wife that he was married to for 40 years and made quite the splash in page six when he dumped her for a 30-some-year-old maid from Poland. He was in his 70s at the time, and he fell head over heels for her. And if you would like to grab a little bit of that history, you can visit their love nest. It's called Jana Polana, and it's now a golf course. You can have your weddings there or play golf there, um, but pretty interesting. And the only brother that was not a multiple marrier was the original Edward Mead Johnson. He left Johnson & Johnson rather early on. Now, when I was doing my research, I had a very difficult time finding out things about him. Um, and I did not ever find the name of his wife. I do know that he had a son, and that was the impetus for him leaving Johnson & Johnson. His son actually had a um, defect with his heart and his stomach and had difficulty uh, digesting regular formula or cow's milk. And so Edward Mead Johnson ended up formulating what is now known as Infamil. Um, I used it on my son uh, who had digestive issues, and I'm sure a lot of you have. And Edward Mead Johnson moved away from New Brunswick and set up out in the Midwest. Um, he went where his product was manufactured. It was manufactured out there and using grains and other things. So Johnson & Johnson, over the last 140 years have gone from manufacturing medicinal plasters to coming up with a one-dose COVID-19 vaccine. And if you don't think that's incredible, just think about it. I mean, we went from medicinal plasters made with mustard and cloth to something that is being distributed throughout the world to cure a deadly disease. That's not to say that there weren't a few missteps. There was the Tylenol scare a few 
decades ago. And more recently, the baby powder lawsuit. Uh, It's funny, I used to talk about the baby powder in my tours, and I would tell you about how there was over 100 ingredients that went into making that baby powder smell that everybody loves so much. Who knew that all the time that baby powder that everybody was using could sometimes become deadly? But that's Johnson & Johnson. And I hope you enjoyed this podcast and gave you a little insight to what's behind that name that you see in the news today. And um, I'll look forward to talking to you on my next podcast, Roxanne Repeats History. Thanks. And I'll talk to you soon.